Turn back to Genesis. Uh, we are in Genesis 33, uh, going back to the life of Jacob. We only have a little bit longer left with Jacob, depending on how Santo and I preached the last few chapters of his life. But if you remember, he had a special encounter with God. Right? Last week, uh, we talked about that, how he wrestled with God himself. And he came out of that wrestling match humble. He came out of that wrestling match depending upon God and trusting him more fully, ready to walk into what he thought was his greatest enemy or greatest challenge, which was meeting his brother Esau. And that's where we find ourselves here at the beginning of chapter 33. So if you're able, stand with me for the reading of God's holy word. We are going to read um, all of chapter 33, which is about 20 verses. So let's start there in verse 1. Jacob looked up, and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two maidservants. He put the maidservants and their children in front, Leah and their children next, and Rachel and Joseph in the rear. He himself went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Then Esau looked up and saw the women and children. Who are these with you? he asked. Jacob answered, They are the children God has graciously given your servant. Then the maidservant and their children approached and bowed down. Next Leah and her children came and bowed down. Last of all, Joseph and Rachel, and they too bowed down. Esau asked, what do you mean by all these droves I met? Well, to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, he said. But Esau said, I already have plenty, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. No, please, Jacob said. If I have found favor in your eyes, accept this gift from me. For to see your face is like seeing the face of God. Now that you have received me favorably. Please accept the present that was brought to you, for God has been gracious to me, and I have all I need. And because Jacob insisted, Esau accepted. Then Esau said, Let us be on our way. I'll accompany you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are tender, and that I must care for the ewes and the cows that are nursing their young. If they're driven hard just one day, all the animals will die. So let my Lord go on ahead of his servant. Will I move along slowly at the pace of the droves before me and that of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir? Esau said, Then leave me some of my men with you, or let me leave some of my men with you. But why do that? Jacob asked. Just let me find favor in the eyes of my Lord. So that day Esau started on his way back to Seir. Jacob, however, went to Succoth where he built a, him, or built a place for himself and made shelters for his livestock. That is why the place is called Succoth. After Jacob came from Padam Aaron, he arrived safely at the city of Shechem in Canaan and camped within sight of the city. For a hundred pieces of silver he bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, the plot of ground where he pitched his tent. There he set up an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. Word of the Lord. 
Amen. You guys can take a seat. All right. So, here um, in, in Genesis chapter 33, we have Jacob once again. And Jacob had this amazing encounter with God, just like we said in chapter 32. And he is a changed man, right? He is a changed man, but he's also a changing man, just like you and I, you and I right? We are changed by the grace of God when we pray to receive Christ, and then we're being changed all the way throughout our lives, however long God has us here on the earth. And yet, as this changed man, he is, has been reassured of God's promises. He has received a blessing from the Lord. That's what he was wrestling to get. He was holding on to God, saying, I will not let you go until you bless me. And so God blessed him and gave him this assurance that his promises were going to be true. But still, Jacob doesn't know what lies ahead. Right? Jacob has been worried all along, what's going to happen when I meet my brother Esau? How is he going to receive me? It's been 20 years, long enough time for that, kindle, that anger to be kindled and, and that fire of rage to be out of control. And so he kind of thoroughly expects that when he meets his brother, his brother's still going to be angry. And so he has those questions in his mind. Will he still be angry and ready to kill me? Or will he be ready to forgive me and be restored? So many questions that swirled around as he saw, as the text says, he looked up and saw Jacob coming with his 400 men. Remember earlier, he got that report of those 400 men and he was scared out of his mind, like probably any of one of us would be. That was looking more like an army than a welcoming party. But Jacob, it seems, was ready to walk by faith. So the text says that he split up his camps kind of into a, a special procession where uh, the different groups of people would approach Esau. But Jacob was leading the way. He was in front. And so he was walking by faith. He was saying, okay, God, whatever you have for me, I have this very different posture than I did before I wrestled you. Now I'm a humble man. I'm lowly. I know that I'm dependent upon you, God, and so I have to go forward and meet my brother. Now, as I've said before, sometimes the way that Moses tells the story is really important. I mean, really, all, all the time, the which and way he tells the story is important. But the things that he chooses to leave out and the things that he chooses to put in give us reminders about what the story is really about. You know, if this were a movie, as the two approach, we would expect what? kind of a long, drawn-out, drama-filled approach as they come to each other. Maybe you kind of see the, start, the, the sweat coming down Jacob's face, wondering what would happen. And on top of that, you would probably see this, it would be this long scene, right, where it's just the tension is building and building and building as they approach one another. And yet that's not what we see here. Jacob and Esau are approaching each other, and you would expect Jacob to feel some type of way with who? Esau. And Esau to feel some type of way with him. You would expect that Esau would want to let off some steam and to say some things he probably knows he shouldn't say to Jacob. This is the first time he's seen him in 20 years. And when he left, he had deceived him. And he wanted to kill him. 
But to everyone's surprise, and I think Jacob's most of all, that's not what happens here. Verse 4, again, look at it, says, But Esau ran to meet him. He embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. That's not what we expected. That's not what Jacob expected. And yet God had graciously given this to him. One commentator pointed out that this could have very well been in response to his prayer back in chapter 32. If you remember back in 32.11, you can look there now, it, you know, he prays, please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers, with the children. Could have very well been an answer to this exact prayer. But to everyone's surprise, Esau wasn't mad, but he was glad. He was the one who dropped everything and ran to his brother. He wept, and they wanted to, he wanted to be restored to him. It's funny that Esau is the one that initiates this reconciliation between the two brothers. And he shows this generous, over-the-top love towards his brother. The main question in Jacob's mind that created all this tension was, will he accept me? The text talks about that over and over again. Will I find favor or will he accept me when we meet him, when I meet him? But for Jacob, it may kind of seem too good to be true. Like when two siblings get in a fight, right? I'm sure we've all been there, right? Two siblings get in the fight and one does something really bad to the other one and, and they get caught. What happens? Well, the one tries to make up for the thing that they did to the other. They say, all right, give a free hit, you know, or, or you can say whatever you want to me, or I'll do your laundry for a week. But instead, they just say, I forgive you. It's kind of mind-blowing, right? Like, you don't want to punch me? Are you sure? Like, you don't want to get one hit in? No, he just says, I forgive you. I love you. I wanted my brother back. That's what happens here with Esau. And they embrace. It seems like they are reconciled. And after they embrace, Esau looks up and says, Brother, who is this whole company with you? Remember, it's been 20 years. When he came away from that land, he was single. He had no family, no money, no possessions. And God was making good on his promise to say, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you a people. I'm going to give you a land. He's fulfilling his promises. Now it's 20 years later, and he's carrying his whole entourage with him. And it's beautiful. And now Jacob is clear that only God is the one who gets the credit for this. Look at verses 5 and 11. God had given Jacob great grace, undeserved favor, and Jacob knew it. This time, Jacob would not pridefully claim anything. He would not say, I was the one that did this or did that. It was because of my strength or my power or my business mind that I got all these resources. He says, it was God, brother. It was God who has given me all these things and more. But it seems still for Jacob, as we're working through this story, that he's still kind of plagued by that question. Will my brother really forgive me? Will he really accept me? And, and we probably would be in the same boat if we were in Jacob's shoes, right? We have done something horrendous to our brother, to our sister, and they just say, I forgive you, I love you. And you're kind of like, is that it? Do you really forgive me? 
in verses 8 through 11, it seems like he brings this up over and over again. Look there. Three times he says this. Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I met? Which means talking about all the stuff that uh, Esau sent ahead of him in, in the previous chapter. But Jacob answered to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep it for yourself. Jacob said, no, please. If I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present. Then he goes on later to say, please accept my blessing that is brought to you. Because God has dealt with me graciously. It seems like Jacob just can't wrap his head around his brother forgiving him and initiating that reconciliation. He's wondering in his mind, is it really true? I need that extra proof or assurance. And the acceptance of these gifts was that extra proof for Jacob. And so Esau accepts these gifts of his brother. And it seems to be a very sweet picture of reconciliation. But what I want to point out here is that even in this story of reconciliation between these brothers, it's sweet, but it's incomplete. What do I mean by that? When I say it's sweet and incomplete, well, what I mean is that Esau is an unbeliever. He's not a Christian. And so even the best reconciliation that these brothers can experience in this world is still falling short. It's not the type of reconciliation that we see in the rest of the Bible where it talks about two brothers and sisters in the Lord coming together, having sinned against each other, and being reconciled through the gospel of grace. See, this reconciliation, it's good. It's, 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 it's a good story for us to look at, but it's an incomplete story. Maybe some of us can relate. Maybe we have family members that aren't believers. I'm sure that in our, our families, at least there's one that's not a believer. And to think about, when we get in arguments and we try to make up or reconcile with them, there's something that's always missing, right? Maybe it's someone even closer. Maybe it's a mom or a dad or a brother or a sister. And you don't share the thing that's most important in your life with them, which is Jesus. For one reason or another, they don't believe in God. Or they are mad at him and don't want to follow him. Whatever it may be. And so that reconciliation can only be so far. It can only go so far. Because Jesus is not at the center. And so it is a sweet picture here for Jacob and Esau in their reconciliation. But at very best, it's still incomplete. But as it was, Esau and Jacob did enjoy God's grace in bringing about a taste of reconciliation towards brothers who really despised each other. But as the story goes along, there is some interesting things that go on with these two brothers back and forth in verses 12 through 17. But ultimately, Jacob and Esau decide to go their separate ways. And Jacob declines his brother's offer to escort him, and the two take opposite paths. Esau goes back to Seir, and Jacob heads towards Suck. And I don't want to spend much time here because really 18 through 20 really bring kind of this whole story full circle for us and really kind of lands the plane as far as the meaning of the story for you and for I. So take a look there at verse 18. And Jacob came safely. Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. Now, why is this significant? Well, we know that the land of Canaan is the promised land. 
It's the land that God said, this is going to be yours and your descendants. I've promised this to you. I'm going to make good. And chapters before, years later, or, or time later, before, he had said, return to your homeland. Return to your place where your fathers are. He is now in the boundaries of the promised land. And so he can look back and say, God has taken me this far. God's making good on his promise to bring me back home. God did what he said he was going to do. God said he would watch over him and do good to him. God said that he would make his family as numerous as the sand on the seashore, the stars in the sky. And this was exactly what was happening for brother Jacob. And not only that, it was in part an answer to the earlier prayer back in chapter 28, as we've seen before. See, this is God's promise coming to pass in Jacob's life. He is seeing this. He is watching God's handiwork and glorifying God because of it. So that it's fitting that in response to all of this, as he looks at this reception of his brother, God bringing him to the boundaries of the promised land, what does he do? Verse 20, he worships. Verse 20, he worships God. Look there. He erected an altar and called it El, Elohi, Israel. You know what this means? It means God, the God of Israel. But who is he speaking about? Is he speaking about Israel, the nation, like you and I generally know that term to be? No. The Israel, Israel the nation, has not formed yet in the story of the Bible. What he's talking about is himself. Remember, God gave him the name Israel. He strives with God, or God strives with him. Israel, the man, had been radically changed and now is living with God in a unique way. God had prevailed in his life. God had humbled him. God had shown him great grace. Essentially, what Jacob is saying here is, this is my God. He's claiming God. And that's important for us. God claimed him a long time ago. God said, this one's mine. From, we know from before eternity. But now he is coming to the place where he's saying, this God who has done this work in my life, he is my God and I am unashamed of that fact. God is the God of Israel, the God of me. One question for us to ponder this morning is, can we say that of ourselves? Can we claim, like Brother Jacob, that God, the God of the Bible, is our God? Is He the God of us? You know, back in chapter 28, we've been talking about how um, things have been coming to pass. One commentator records this, that at Bethel, where he was previously, uh, Jacob had promised that if God will be with me, then Yahweh shall be my God. Here, Jacob, via his new name, fulfills the commitment he first made at Bethel many years ago. God is indeed his God. God is indeed the God of Israel. And so this storyline of Jacob is coming around full circle. Those many times, many days, many years ago when he said, if you will be with me, if you will do what you said you were going to do, then you will be my God. This is happening here now in real time 
This is a great encouragement for you and for me. It's a great encouragement for us to see God making good on his promises to one of his people so long ago. And for his people to recognize it and to praise God for it. See, but still, Brother Jacob's journey was far from over. He still had many miles to go on his trek, on his pilgrim journey. Notice where Jacob ends up. Where where does he set up camp in verse 18? He sets up camp in Shechem. Now, I know that most of us don't know where that was. I didn't know where that was before I looked at a map. But I looked on a map before, uh, before this Sunday. And it's within the boundary of the promised land. But the important thing here is it's still about 20 to 30 miles or a day's journey from where his father lives. Why is that important? Because Jacob still has part of his journey to go. He's in the promised land, yes. But still to be obedient to God and do what God fully said was to go back home, all the way home. He has 20 or 30 miles left. He still has a way to go. It's kind of like when our family's coming back on a trip from, say, North Carolina, and we finally get to the expressway, right? That's a big thing. We're almost home. But we still have the expressway to go. We still got to go all the way down the expressway and get to our house. But for Brother Jacob here, the same thing is true. He still has part of his journey to go. He's not done yet. Verse 19 says that in Shechem, Jacob bought some land and he pitched a tent. Now, we don't know why he stopped here. Maybe it was because of the fact that he said earlier that his uh, cattle, livestock needed some rest. His family needed some rest. He didn't want to push them too hard. But for some reason, he hung out here for a while. His journey still had some miles left to go. And so his final destination, which was back uh, where in Bethel, he still had to go. And it reminded me of the song that we always sing, right? We've come this far by, far by faith, leaning on the Lord, trusting in his holy word. He's never failed me yet. And then the refrain, can't turn around, we've come this far by faith. Jacob had come so far by faith, and yet he couldn't turn around. He still had distance to go. Same is true of you and me. We've come this far by faith. We can't stop now. It makes me think about Hebrews chapter 11. Often in our study of Genesis, we've gone back to Hebrews 11, where it talks about those famous saints who have gone and paved the way before us. They are men and women of faith who have walked by faith with God, who have seen Him do amazing things. I'd like you to turn to chapter 11 of Hebrews there with me for a few moments. In the middle of Hebrews chapter 11, in verses 13 through 16, God says these awesome words. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged they were strangers and exiles, or as the KJV says, pilgrims on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have, not had, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. 
for he has prepared for them a city. Why do I bring this to our attention? Well, the Bible makes it clear that for you and for I, we are no longer strangers and pilgrims to the family of God. Why? Because of Jesus. Jesus has welcomed us in as sons and daughters into his kingdom. He has started us on this pilgrim journey that we each have before us. As Hebrews 11 and 12 say, it's a race marked out before us. But being sons and daughters of the kingdom of God makes us strangers and pilgrims in this world. That's really important for us to understand. You and I are strangers here. This is not our home. We are pilgrims passing. We have a journey to the true promised land that you and I are each on, just like brother Jacob. Jacob still had many miles to go. But what was in Jacob's mind ultimately was that better country that Hebrews 11 talks about. He says, I'm on my way to the promised land. I can't, I can't stop yet. i got to keep going. This is not my home. Same way, you and I. This is not our home. We are made for the true promised land with God, which we will dwell in forever. And in Christ God promises to get us all the way there. He will not stop until you and I have made it all the way home. I don't know about you guys, but for me, that is a great assurance. That's a great encouragement that God, who began this race in me, will take me all the way through to the finish line. All the way through. Not just to up to the finish line or close to the finish line, but he's going to take you and me to the finish line. That's his promise to us. But we have many miles ahead of us. We don't know how many miles. We don't know how many days that God is going to give us. For one person, it may be a few, and then he'll take them. For another, it may be years upon years upon years of walking with God. But that's the journey that we each have before us. So the question remains, how do we remain faithful on that pilgrim journey? Well, Hebrews goes on to tell us in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I love these verses. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that's marked before us. How? Looking unto Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Jesus ran his race. Jesus was the founder. He was the pioneer who ran before us, who paved the way in more ways than one. It is because of Jesus and who he is and what he has done for you and for me that all of the promises of God are yes. Just like Caleb read for us this morning. Every promise that God gives us as his people is yes. But that's only because of Jesus. Only because of what he did for you and for me. And so now we can walk boldly, trusting in those promises. No matter what is before us, no matter what will come ahead. But you know, I imagine that there are some of us in this room that say, yes, 
I believe you, Pastor. But right now, I'm just not feeling it. Right now, it just doesn't seem like God is being faithful to his promises. Right now, on my pilgrim journey, I'm tired. I'm frustrated. I'm weak. It seems like you've been very far from me, Lord. It's just something I can't believe right now. The question I want to ask us this morning, are some of us weak in faith? Are some of us tired on our pilgrim journey? Is that ache for our true homeland, does it feel too great to continue on? I'm sure that for some of us, we feel that way. With every high, there comes a low in this fallen world. You know, as I was preparing for this sermon, even this high experience that Jacob had with God and with his brother here in chapter 33, what happens in the very next chapter? In the very next chapter, Jacob's daughter, Dina, is raped. He had this high experience with the Lord, and yet he also lives in a fallen world. How hard that is sometimes for you and for I. Another kid gets shot. Another another mayor gets kicked out for doing something he shouldn't have. Another day that we wake up and struggle with something that no one knows, but we struggle with it, and and it's taken a toll on us. We live in a fallen world. God is still working in us what's pleasing to him, but that means that he's taken out that sin. He's plucking it out of us day by day, moment by moment, and it's tough. But brothers and sisters, there still is a journey ahead of us. Don't let this make us forget about the promises of God. Don't let this make us doubt the promises of God. I know that we're all prone to doubt God's promise and God's word. But what encouragement you and I have here from this text this morning is don't give up hope. Don't give up on the promises of God because God always does what he says he's going to do. That's the beauty of looking back and seeing what God has done. You got to tell yourself, look, Peter, I know you're tempted right now to not believe. But remember what God did in Jacob's life. He can do it right now. He is doing it right now. He's helping you along your journey. you got to preach back to yourself. Stop listening so much. You know, one thing I want to encourage us to do as we come to a close here is to take a playbook out of Hebrews 11. What do I mean by that? Well, Hebrews 11 encourages us to do a few things. The one thing is this, to keep looking up. What do I mean by that? Remembering who God is. Why is it so important that you and I fix our minds on God throughout our day and throughout our week? Well, as we come to the Bible and we remember that God is holy or we remember that God is kind and merciful or we remember that God is faithful to his promises, it builds our faith. But what also Hebrews 11 does is it keeps looking back looks in two directions, up and back. What do I mean by that? Looking back on what God has done in the past, not only in our lives, but in the lives of his church throughout all of human history. Because as we see his faithfulness to carry people along their race, our faith is built. And we say, oh, that's right. God did carry my grandma all the way through. God did carry my mom all the way through to the end. Or God did carry Brother Jacob or Abraham or or David all the way through to the end. 
and he's going to do it for me. That's the way that we build our faith. That's the way that we take heart in the midst of these very real struggles that each of us have in this fallen world. So as we look up and as we look back, watch God build our faith. And as he builds our faith, put that one step in front of the other because you still have a race to be ran. Keep looking up and keep looking back. Let's pray. Father, you are so good to us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you love us the way that you do. We don't deserve it. Man, we're worse than Jacob. And yet you have chosen to show your love to us. And so, God, we just praise you. We give you all the honor and all the glory. But, God, we need your help because I know that each one of us are in the thick of it, somehow, some way. Some of us are struggling to believe your promises. And we need your help. God, would you please help us to keep looking up and to keep looking back. And Lord, that you would help us to run the race that's marked before us, this pilgrim journey that's not over till you say it's over, but we know that you're going to get us through to that finish line. And so we pray by uh, your grace and by your help, help us to keep on keeping on, that we might glorify you and enjoy you now and forevermore. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.